Gotta get centered in the video here. Good morning. <clears throat> well, we have a word of prayer and then we can get into the scriptures this morning. Lord, help us this morning as we look in Acts chapter 16 as we continue our study in this very important book that we will uh, comprehend, uh, firstly, obviously, just the basic nuts and bolts of what's going on here in this text. But then beyond that, Lord, I pray that you will um, cause us to be changed in light of the truth that we see here. Draw us close. Open our eyes again to understand. Help us to be amazed at a God that would actually love us. Reach out to us and save us. And so, Lord, I pray that you will help us this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. <clears throat> this morning's text is a as always, I say this quite often, I think, it's an interesting text, um, but because they always are, right? But it's an interesting text in that this text that we're looking at this morning has oftentimes been mishandled um, and, and misunderstood and misapplied. And so I'm, I'm hopeful that this morning, as we work through the text this morning, we're basically going to be looking at verse 6 of chapter 16 through verse 10. Hopefully we can help bring a little light to an understanding that perhaps will be valuable to you from a um, correct understanding perspective, but we're also going to try to apply it. So we're going to look at it several different ways that we work our way through the text so we can understand it, um, respond to it, and, and live according to it, and have a more correct understanding of God and how he works. Uh, so hopefully this will help. We have an interesting scenario here. We, the, the controversy in Acts chapter 15, or the two controversies in Acts chapter 15, have brought, been brought to a conclusion. There's agreement among the elders and the, um, the uh, apostles. And Paul and Silas now are traveling and presenting this letter. And we saw that last week. Are presenting this letter that describes the role uh, or what, what is actually part of and belonging in our understanding of salvation and what is excluded from salvation. Obviously that was what was going on in Acts chapter 15. Uh, people are being saved, we saw in Acts chapter 16, 1 through 5. Uh, the churches are being encouraged and strengthened, verse 5, in the faith. We come to verse 6 through 10, and some really kind of strange things begin to happen. A couple of odd things happen um, that, that people, again, have oftentimes lashed upon and ran with and tried to apply it in ways it cannot be applied. So let me just take a stop momentarily and remind you of something. This is uh, from basic, basic hermeneutics, or how do you interpret the scriptures? Remember, there are two different types of things in the scriptures you need to identify always. There are many different types. But the two we're looking at this morning are descriptive and prescriptive passages. You know, I know you've heard me say that many times, but it's very important if we are going to correctly interpret and handle the scriptures, we always must identify prescriptive versus descriptive passages. Now, we certainly cannot make an absolute blanket statement that all descriptive purposes are this and all prescriptive per, uh, passages are that. What I mean by descriptive, prescriptive, again, just a reminder, a descriptive passage describes what happens. For example, Ken came to church today and ran into an old friend. That's descriptive, correct? There's nothing prescriptive about that, is there? That is pure description. If, on the other hand, I knew that Mark was here and I called Ken because Mark wanted to surprise Ken, and I called and said, Ken, I don't know if you're planning to come to church this morning, but you must come to church this morning. Is that descriptive or prescriptive? Clearly prescriptive. You get the difference, right? One describes, the other one prescribes. Very different. And if we mess that up, and it happens all the time in interpretation of Scripture, when we mess that up, we will forever screw up an understanding, our understanding of the Scriptures. And we will develop really, really bad theology. The description, prescription perspectives must be recognized. That's, that's going to come into really important play here. 
So Paul and Silas are traveling again. Some people have called this, many people have called this a second missionary journey. They're traveling, and you'll see in verse 6, they, they went through the region of, of Phrygia and Galatia, which is just prescriptive or descriptive? It's descriptive, absolutely. And then it goes on and says, having been, this is where it gets interesting, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Descriptive or prescriptive? Prescriptive to them, descriptive to us, correct? The Holy Spirit said to Paul and Silas, revealed to Paul and Silas, you must not go to Asia. Right? Descriptive to the reader. Does, just, for, just for sake of clarity, does that mean that you should never, if you're in Asia, that you should never preach the gospel? Of course not. Absolutely not. Does this mean, now we're, now we're going to probe it a little bit further, because the Holy Spirit told them not to go into Asia, does that mean they should never, ever, at any time in the future, go to Asia? No. It's just, at that moment in time, they were heading towards the border, the, what would have been called in that day, the border between, between the, uh, the ancient Near East and the Far East. And he said, no, don't go there. At that moment in time, the Holy Spirit said, don't go there. Does that make sense so far? It was, it was prescriptive for Paul and Silas, descriptive to the reader. They're forbidden to, uh, to, by the Holy Spirit to speak the word of God in Asia. We're going to come back to that in just a second. I just wanted to make sure and explain what we're talking about here. Verse 7, because there's some really important things to unpack there in verse 6. And when they had come to Myasia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. In other words, if you, could, if you could understand it this way, if you could picture it this way, it's almost like they came right up to the Asian border and turned away. That's basically what's happening here. Come right up to and turn away. They attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Get the picture? The whole, it says here, the, the Spirit of Jesus... Didn't allow them. Said no. And maybe, I, we don't know what that means, did not allow them. Does that mean there was even some sort of physical restraint? Uh, well, maybe, right? There's no real clarity of what that means except they didn't allow them to go in there. So there's a, a forbidden in verse 6. In verse 7, you have uh, a, a, a actual not allowing them to go. So, passing by Myasia, they went down to Troas instead. That's what it says. So they went to Troas instead. I'm just reading along with what Tom read and just unpacking a little bit. We're going to go back and unpack it even more in just a second. Verse 8, uh, uh, sorry, verse 9, And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was staying there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. We're going to stop at the end of verse, verse uh, 9 at this point. We're going to spend a little time in this whole section, 6 through 9. First, let me go to the very last statement of verse 9. The vision that Paul is having, and by the way, vision is different from a dream. A dream happens when you're what? Asleep. A vision most times happens when you're awake. He's having a vision, and in his vision, there's a man of Macedonia standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. This is especially interesting, the very end. There's a couple things that are really interesting about this. Macedonia is more in, in the, um, it's across the sea, and it's in a very Grecian-influenced area, including all the Greek philosophy and all the rest of it. And it's interesting, you have this man in Macedonia in the vision crying out to, to Paul in this vision, urging him, you get, you get the sense of, the, of his longing, his strong desire for Paul to come over and do what? Help him. That's the words. Help him. It is interesting, the, the words that Luke chooses 
uh, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit here to be inspired words. It's not come here and preach the gospel, is it? The Macedonian guy is not saying come and preach the gospel. What is he saying? Help us. Which means what? They need help. It's pretty easy, right? They need help. But it's something much more important than that. Because with all the Greek influence, all the Greek philosophical influences, the picture, if, if I may present it this way, is of a Macedonian man representing the people in the entire region. You get that point, right? Because he, he uses a plural term, help us. He's representative of all these people. And he is saying what? Help us. Meaning, we need help. You know what the implication of that is? All that we've clung to, all that we've valued, all that has given us guidance and purpose and meaning has what? It's failed. It's bankrupt. It's empty. We've discovered it, we've examined it, and we've discovered that it is absolutely wanting. It's made all sorts of promises. It has yielded nothing. Now, from Paul's perspective, that means what? They need, they need the gospel, right? From God's perspective, they need the gospel. The Macedonian doesn't understand that yet in the vision, right? He's just like, everything we have has failed us. Everything. We need something. Because we are desperately in need of help. And of course, we know in the storyline that Paul and Silas do what? They bring the gospel, don't they? But in 6 through 9, there's a couple things that are very interesting. We've already pointed them out. There's one thing we haven't pointed out yet. But a couple things that are really interesting is you have the Holy Spirit forbidding. You have the Spirit of Jesus stopping them, not allowing them. And we have a vision, Right? Now let's go back to our opening point. All those things, descriptive or prescriptive for the reader? Descriptive. Now I pause on this, and I, it's very important that we pause on this because there is, I hear it regularly, and I just really want to address it. We've addressed it in the past, but we haven't addressed it in the recent past. I hear it all the time among Christianity interesting statements that I think are very important to mention. And sometimes they even reference this passage. But I hear Christians say things like, God told me, and they tell me something. I hear people say regularly, the Holy Spirit told me, and they say something. I hear people even talk about hoping for, praying for, and looking for a Macedonian call. I hear people think about missionaries, wanting to be a missionary, I mean, who have actually talked about receiving a Macedonian call. And I want to pause on all those for a second. Because I think it's really important, again, descriptive versus prescriptive. And I'm going to start off by saying, asking these questions. You don't need to answer, but I'm just going to ask these questions. Should we expect, should any Christian today expect to receive a Macedonian call? I'm going to answer it. You don't have to. Should any Christian today expect to receive a Macedonian call? The answer is no. This is descriptive, not prescriptive. Now, that one's not that hard to swallow for most Christians, but the next one is really hard to swallow for a lot of Christians. Should people, should Christians expect outside the Scriptures, because that's what's happening here, isn't it? Outside the Scriptures. In addition to the Scriptures, should the average Christian or any Christian expect the Holy Spirit to speak to them. Should the average Christian or any Christian expect that the Holy Spirit 
would forbid or stop, as this text says. Should any Christian today expect that? Could I just answer the question? No. We should not. We absolutely should not expect it, nor should we ever even look for it. In any way, form, or fashion. Let me explain what I mean. This is descriptive. It is not prescriptive. I would argue that we don't find anywhere a prescription that we should look for this. Are there times when God speaks to people? Absolutely in the scriptures. No question. We have it right here, don't we? Sometimes with a vision. Sometimes with words. Sometimes with dreams. There is no question you see that in the scriptures. But do you see it only descriptively or do you see it prescriptively? You see it descriptively. And by the way, I would submit to you that in the scriptures you do not see it commonly. You see it very, very occasionally. That being said, I want to remind you my perspective on the Word of God, on the Scriptures, is this. God has spoken to us. He has declared His truth to us. He has given us these 66 books. And He's given us the Holy Spirit, whose purpose is to reveal to us, to open our eyes spiritually to see what the Scriptures say. I would present to you that you could argue through the Scriptures in numerous places what I call, I I describe it as the sufficiency of the Scriptures, that God has given us everything we need. Right here. Everything. And there is no better passage to look at than 2 Peter chapter 1. So let's flip over to 2 Peter chapter 1 briefly. Second Peter chapter 1, we're going to read basically the whole chapter. Starting in verse 1. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing but with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of the, our, of the Lord, our, I'm sorry, of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. I want to pause on verse 3 for a second. You'll notice in verse 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And then what did he say? Because if we left it just at that phrase, then it's wide open, isn't it? But when we go to the next phrase, it says, through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. You know what it means? It begs the reader of 2 Peter chapter 1 to ask a major question. And the question we've got to ask is, where do we get the knowledge of Him? who called us to his own glory and excellence. Where do we get the knowledge of Jesus? It's only in the Scriptures. It is nowhere else. It is only in the Scriptures. And he says, in other words, in verse 3, he starts off with his divine power referring to the Holy Spirit. He has granted to us all things that pertain to life of God is through the knowledge. Well, the only way it happens is through the knowledge, that which is revealed through the Scriptures. It goes on, verse 4, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises. Where do we find out any and all of his great promises? and amazing promises. It's only through the Scriptures, correct? 
We know nothing about his great and amazing promises outside of the scriptures. So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. The end of verse 4 is talking purely and simply about the gospel, isn't it? Isn't it? That is just straight gospel. Where do we find out anything about the gospel? It's only in the scriptures. There is no gospel outside the scriptures. He goes on. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and, with, and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. Can I just pause on that, that statement there in, seven, in 6, 7, and 8 or 5 through 8? If we don't have God's explanation and definitions and descriptions in the scriptures of what any of those things are, do we have any hope of understanding any of them? No. That is, that is based completely upon the scriptures, tied in, intricately and intimately and completely with the scriptures. He goes on. Verse 8, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective and unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There it is in knowledgeable again. Knowledge having effect in someone's life. That's what it's talking about. Again, from the scriptures. It goes on, for whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he is cleansed from his former sins. In other words, verse 9, he's forgotten what? Everything that the scriptures have declared. Verse 10, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way there will be richly, there, uh, for in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Can I just pause on 11 real quick? I'm flying through this real quickly purposefully. But in verse 11, what I just read, I'm going to read it again. For in this way there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can I just pause it for a second and ask you a quick question? Is there any entrance into the kingdom of God outside of the scriptures? You better answer no. <laughs> You'd better answer no. Verse 12, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you knew them, and are established in the truth that you have. Notice what he just said? Verse 12. What is he going to do? I'm going to remind you of everything I've been talking to you about. Correct? I'm going to remind you of everything I'm talking about. Though you know them, those things I'm talking about, and are established in the, what does he call it? Truth. Elsewhere, what does the scripture say? Your word is truth that you have. Verse 13, I think it right as long as I am in this body to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, which by the way is in the scriptures, John, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. What is... Again, verse 15, I'll make every effort so that after my departure you'll be able at any time to recall these things. What does Peter do all the time? Is he talking about ex exterior things from the Scriptures? Or is he talking about the Scriptures? You see the, con the continual theme so far? Verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but... He goes on and says, this is where it gets really interesting, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, when we received honor, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne by him, or to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were uh, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Stop there for a second. What's he referencing? In 16 through 19, he's talking about being on top of the Mount of Transfiguration and watching Jesus Christ be transfigured. You've heard me say this before. What an amazing experience that must have been. What a stunning thing that must have been for them. Even though Peter gets rebuked by Jesus, or by, uh, by the Father, I mean. 
one of the most horrifying rebukes recorded in the scripture up until final judgment, right? But it, it's, it's really intriguing. Peter's like, yeah, we were on the holy mountain. We saw Jesus be transfigured. We're not chasing after myths, but we saw that happen. And you know what I hear people say all the time? Man, wouldn't it have been amazing to have been there? I mean, oh my goodness, to see Jesus transfigured, to hear the voice of God, my goodness, of course, I'd be, my faith would be like through the roof like Peter's is if I would have heard that and seen that. Eh, wrong answer. Wrong statement. Because what does Peter do next? Verse 19, and we have the, word, the prophetic word more fully confer- confirmed. You know what he said? Simply, he said, the word of God is more, you can have more confidence in. The word of God is what's crucial. Yeah, I had this amazing experience, but you know what's really important? The scriptures. It's the theme of chapter 1. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed than what? Than what we saw. We have the word of God more fully confirmed than what we experienced. We have the word of God more fully confirmed than what we heard. In other words, to put it really in the vernacular, the word of God trumps it all. The word of God rules it all. And then what does he say? Right after that, we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What is Peter saying? We had an amazing experience. You know what trumps it completely? The Scriptures. And by the way, exclusively, Peter says next, that's what you do well to cling to. Implication. What shouldn't you cling to? experience. What you've experienced. I hear it all the time from people. They say, well, you can't deny what I've experienced. I'm not denying what you've experienced. I'm just saying the Word of God trumps all. It trumps all. In every way. There's no authority in the other ones. No authority. The authority is in what has been inspired by God, the Holy Scriptures, to which you would do exclusively well to cling to. He doesn't say you would do well to cling to the Scriptures and the various experiences you had. It's exclusive. You do well to cling to, always, the Scriptures. So, going back to chapter 16 of Acts, what we have is we have these descriptive statements that Paul explains, or Luke explains, Paul, Paul had the Holy Spirit forbidding him, the Spirit of Jesus not allowing him, and then a vision. And they are amazing, aren't they? But the confidence is where? It has to be in the Scriptures. Now, I'm going to get off of that at this point. I want to jump all the way back to verse 6. I told you we've got several interesting things to see. <clears throat> it is interesting. And I want to challenge our thinking a little bit here. Because it's really kind of strange if you really think about it. Verse 6, And they went through the region of, of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Does that sound odd to you and your understanding of Jesus, God, God's plan? Does that sound a little odd to you? 
couple of you shook your head, yeah. Yes, but it still sounds odd, doesn't it? From how we typically think about God. Don't, doesn't it sound really weird? The way it's typically thought about God, well, why, would God, why wouldn't God want everybody to hear any, every time, right? But what does he do here? He forbids Paul and Silas from going to do what? To build tents? To preach the gospel. He forbids them to go there. Now, we do have recordings that at some point in time, the gospel did go to Asia. We have two evidence of that. In Second Peter, uh, 1 Peter 1, uh, it mentions the, the believers of Asia. And then, of course, at the end of 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul describes how the entire church in Asia left him. They all turned their back on the truth. So we have those. So at some point in time, the gospel did go. No question about it. But at this point, there is a forbidding to go. That's kind of an intriguing statement. Can I just say this? If that's, if that's confusing to you, you know what that means? It means you have a wrong understanding of God. See, too often I, I hear this idea, well, 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 of course God wants to tell the gospel to everyone. Well, yes, he says that, doesn't he? But that doesn't mean that everyone is to be saved. At this point in time, he's actually forbidding, and it happens several times in the scriptures. And that has to fit into our understanding of who God is. And we have that in other places. For example, in the Old Testament, you have, you have uh, with regard to the Pharaoh, what, happens, what, what, what does God do with the Pharaoh? He hardens his heart. When he sends Isaiah to the children of Israel, he says, who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here am I. Send me. And, and, and God says to Isaiah in his vision, what? I want you to go, I'm going to sum it up, I want you to go and preach the gospel, Isaiah chapter 6, preach repentance. I want you to go and preach repentance to the people, and I am going to what? Harden their hearts so that they do not repent, so that I will what? Destroy them. That's what God says his plan was for them. He's going to harden their hearts so that he will destroy them. They will not respond. Isaiah, he's telling Isaiah, you will have no success as man defines success. It will be successful because the result will be no one will repent and I will destroy them. That's exactly what happens. But you see that type of thing repeatedly in the scriptures. Here we have a forbidding of taking the gospel into Asia. So jumping back down to 10. And when, and when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. I want to spend a little time in verse 10, because it's kind of interesting. Again, working off our theme for the morning. If I may just be as blunt as possible, I hear this from people regularly. Going back to the God told me. God didn't tell me. God told me. God didn't tell me. I hear this regularly from people. Well, God hasn't told me to, to uh, present the gospel to this person yet. I've heard this type of statement regularly. Can I just say something real quickly? Going back to 2 Peter chapter 1, you have this revealed scriptures, right? To which you would do well to what? Pay attention to, correct? Paul had a vision. Macedonian call, it's called. The man in Macedonia saying, come, help us. 
And immediately they sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Man, if only God would tell me who to preach the gospel to, right? Man, if only God would tell me. Really? Second Peter 1 again. You have the word of God more sure, more confirmed, more solid, to which you do well to pay attention to. And what has God said? What has he said? What has he revealed in the scriptures? Well, how about um, off the top of my head? Matthew 28. Why don't we turn there real quick? Starting in verse 18. We'll start in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw them, saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, to the end of the age. A couple statements I want to direct you to recognize in this text. Number one, <clears throat> a really simple statement you need to recognize. And that is, that is the scriptures. What we just read is the scriptures. Second Peter 1, you have the word of God more confirmed to which you would what? do well to pay attention to, right? And the first thing we need to recognize as we read verses 16 through 20 is this is the Scriptures. This is God's Word. This is the inspired text of God. Next thing we want to recognize in verse 18 as their as What? In verse 18, it says, somewhat. Verse 17, somewhat. Some doubted, right? That's none of us, right? Nah, that's none of us. But some did, I mean, at least that, that day. But that's none of us here. Oh, we'd ever doubt, right? In the midst of the doubt, Jesus speaks. Verse 18, and he says, and we've spoken of this before, all authority which can equally be translated all power, all authority and all power has been, uh, on he in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority, all power in heaven and earth and on earth have been given to me. Those are very much kingdom statements, kingship statements we've said in the past. Where is the authority and the power? Where? But where location-wise in this text, verse 18? Heaven and earth. How much of heaven and earth? All of heaven and earth, right? All authority, all power has been given to Jesus. He's conquered sin and Satan and death, correct? He has now all power, all authority, the kingdom of evil, the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of the devil has been destroyed, been, been conquered. And to those who doubt, his first statement is, remember this. You struggle with doubt? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. You have the word of God more sure, more confirmed which you do well to pay attention to. All authority, all power. 
Can I just ask you a quick question? Where does our doubt come from? What do we doubt? I asked two questions there. We would say very easily with the first one, where does our, our doubt come from? Uh, fear, right? Most times, fear. But ultimately, it's not really even fear. It's belief. I'm sorry? Yeah. But it's really, yeah, it, but it's really intriguing. What we really, what we really have here is why do, we, why do we doubt? Why do they doubt then? Why do we doubt now? Because we really don't believe that all authority and all power belong to him. That's why we doubt. And in doubt we do what? We fear. Because ultimately we really don't believe or we fear that he won't take care of us. We fear that, really, his plan isn't the best for us. We fear that maybe the consequences will be too high. Maybe the people will hate me and I'll lose. All that is coming from, I'm not really confident that all authority, all power has been given to him. It's in light of his declaration of truth. You've heard me say it many times before. I will say it again. Imperatives are always preceded by indicatives. Or the commands and prohibitions of the Scriptures are always preceded by the declarations of reality. And that's exactly what we have here. Verse 18 is a declaration of reality, an indicative. It's the foundation of the imperative. It's, it's what gives the, the, the imperative, the command or prohibition, its strength, its importance, its value, its function. It's in light of all authority, all power being given to Jesus and heaven and earth that he goes on and says, go therefore and make disciples. It's based upon that reality. If I may go back to 2 Peter 1 again, and as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, I know you know these things. I just want to remind you. I just want to remind you That all authority and all power has been given to you. Or given to Jesus, I mean. I'm sorry. Given to Jesus. In heaven and earth, there is no power that's not been given to him. There's no authority that's not been given to him. If you think about that, that's stunning. In the Old Testament, before Matthew was, 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 was recorded, long before, Satan had to go before God to ask permission to do anything to Job. <laughs> Satan could do nothing outside of God's authority. You believe that, don't you? All authority, all power has been given unto me. Go therefore, or more accurately translated, as you're going therefore. And you've heard me say this before, it's as you're living life. That's the idea of the text. As you're living life, the command is what? Make disciples. And everything that comes after that is describing what that means. We don't have time to really unpack it. I'm just going to jump over and say <clears throat> two things. Number one, jump to verse 20. Obviously, 19 is talking about the proclamation of the gospel. And Acts chapter 1 and 2 carry that theme on, as does the rest of the New Testament. But notice verse 20 in light of what we've been talking about this morning. What... Is the, is the first statement of, of verse 20? Teaching them to observe all I've commanded you goes back to the Scriptures again, doesn't it? 
Interestingly enough. And then he wraps it up by saying what? And behold, I'm with you always. Even to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. I am with you always. I will guide you and direct you, empower you, strengthen you, give you the words. And whatever happens, understand this. I'm always first cause because it's always my plan working itself out. Isn't that what he says? He's always first cause, isn't he? He's always first cause. So verse 18 again, all power and authority have been given unto me in heaven and earth. And the one who has all power, all power, will what? Will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Closing up in back to chapter 16 of the book of Acts. We saw some descriptive statements of amazing things, right? Spirit forbidding him. Spirit of Jesus stopping him. Macedonian vision. What's really intriguing about the text is that Paul does what? Paul and Silas do what? They go. Do you see it? And when Paul had seen the vision, what's the next word? In my, in, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. He forbid them over here, and then he said, why don't you go here? And immediately they did what? Immediately they went. Immediately they started preparing to go. They took off as quickly as they possibly could. What's my point? Not my point. What's the point of the text for us? The point of the text is not the forbidding, not the stopping, not the vision. It certainly happened. Certainly there. But when you really think about it, let me just boil it down this way. Ultimately, at the end of the day, whether you have stopping or forbidding, stopping, and vision, got that? There's one package. Forbidding, stopping, and vision. Over here. Over here. Go and make disciples. Go, therefore, make disciples. Or as you're going, make disciples. Could I just ask you a quick question? What's the difference between them? When you really think about it, when you boil it all away, what's the difference? I'll give, you the, I'll give you the difference. There's no difference. You know what the only difference is, friends? You know what the only difference is? The only difference is not forbidding, stopping, and vision versus a scripture passage that tells tells you, commands you in light of the indicatives around it, right? The only real difference is, if I may be blunt, the only real difference is this. The word immediately. Now you're probably looking at me like I have three heads right now, so let me explain it. The only real difference is immediately. Why? Because Paul and Silas had a forbidding, a stopping, and a vision. And as soon as the vision was over, they said, Woo! Let's go present the gospel in Macedonia. Right? That happened? Today, what we hear is what? All authority, all power has been given unto me. As you're going, therefore, make disciples. Wherever you're going, therefore make disciples, baptizing them and teaching them to observe all I've commanded you. And by the way, I'll be with you always to the end of the age. 
and we leave from hearing that or reading it, and we go about and we just do what? What's different about us, if we're not careful and so commonly, what's different is we immediately go to lunch. And then we immediately go home to watch a football game. And then we immediately go to dinner. And then we immediately do a few other things, read a book or whatever. And then we immediately go to bed. And then we immediately get up the next day and go to work among a bunch of unsaved people. And then we immediately make sure and accomplish our tasks of work, right? And then we immediately eat lunch. And then we immediately go back and co- complete more tasks. And then we immediately go have dinner. And then we immediately go and relax. And we watch some tube. And then we immediately go to bed. And the next morning we get up and we immediately do it all over again. And the next morning we immediately do it all over again. And the next minute we immediately do it all over again. And the next month we immediately do it all over again. And then the next year we immediately do it all over again. And somewhere along the way in the midst of that year we once again hear or read or are reminded of by the Holy Spirit bringing back to recollection all authority and all power has been given unto me. As you're going, therefore, make disciples. And we're like, oh yeah. And he says, and Lord, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then we immediately go ahead and continue to do whatever we're going to do. And then another month or two goes by, and another year goes by. And before we know it, it's another decade that goes by. And for most believers, if we were actually willing to be uncomfortable ourselves and walk up to most believers and say, hey, could I just ask you a question, Mr. or Mrs. Believer? Let me ask you a quick question. When was the last time you actually shared the gospel with somebody? When was the last time you actually, because of the indicative, your belief in who Jesus Christ is, and who he's declared himself in the scripture to be, when was the last time they actually were driven by the love of Christ, because Paul says the love of Christ controls me, not the law, the love of Christ controls me, and because I know the fear of God, I persuade men, not law-driven, indicative-driven, right? Statements of reality-driven. When was the last time that resulted in you proclaiming the gospel to somebody, speaking the gospel, doing what you can to make a disciple? You know what I find over and over and over again? They look at me like I have three heads. And they can't answer. Because the real difference in Paul and Silas and the average Christian today is the word immediately. And it's devastating. It's absolutely devastating. And yet, we who claim to be believers can get up day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, decade after decade. And we actually think we love Jesus. When we never ever tell anybody about him. And there is no immediacy. Ken, I so appreciate your confession this morning. When was the last time? I'm going to take it from just generic sin to avoidance of gospel, avoidance of disciple making. When was the last time we were devastated by that? That we avoid. I wonder what would happen if we stopped 
talking about it the way we do and just be honest and say, yeah, today I was really ashamed of Jesus. Because isn't that what it is? Yeah, this last month I was really ashamed of Jesus. Yeah, this last year I was really ashamed of Jesus. Yeah, the last decade I was really ashamed of Jesus. That's pretty uncomfortable, isn't it? Isn't it? So we dress it up so it's not uncomfortable. And the result of dressing it up so it's not uncomfortable is we don't grieve. Because there's no need to then, is there? There's no need. Boy, that word immediately in chapter 16 just jumped off the page to me. Because <laughs> it makes all the difference. You see, the Spirit was at work at Paul and it was evident. For Paul, he had a vision which is no different from forbidding, stopping, and vision from the call of God in the Scriptures, ultimately, which was actually, there is a difference because the Scriptures have more authority, don't they? So really, what we have has more authority. But my goodness, we can't even ask somebody to go out for a cup of coffee with us to talk to him about Jesus. Paul gets on a stinking ship and sails across a sea <laughs> to tell people about Jesus. Yes, he does. We can't even go next door. We can go next door and talk about all sorts of things. Not Jesus. That word immediately becomes really poignant, doesn't it? It's really powerful. In my mind, I, I start to say, isn't it, it, it really is no wonder that people were regularly added to the church <laughs> in Acts, you know? It's no wonder. Gospels being proclaimed everywhere. Shoot, my goodness, they're going to town with the gospel. It's no wonder. So if I could close just on this. Maybe we ought to go to prayer and maybe we ought to just pray that God will give us an immediate heart. A heart inflamed with immediacy. A heart that longs. We sing songs about it, right? We long to see people saved. We sing songs about it. But then we would have a heart that longs for that. That we will have a grieving. That the longing is not there. That our prayers, rather than dripping about Aunt Melba's big toe, will drip about changed hearts among our church. Surrounding immediacy. Add to that that the love of Christ will control us. That we will understand the fear of the Lord and it will cause us to persuade men. Should we pray that way? I think it's a good way to pray. What do you think? I think it's important. If you're not so sure, maybe that's what you ought to pray about. That God will make that sure for you in the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, help us. <clears throat> we live a lot more atheistically than we admit. Because we really do believe that tomorrow will be just like today. And next week will be just like this week. And we don't even realize that we act and think and live. And in so doing, we are saying, where is the sign of his coming? Lord, I pray that you will move mightily in us, not primarily so that we will 
preach the gospel, that, but that you will change us so that we will long for you. So that we will know you as you are. So that we will understand that all power and all authority have been given unto you. So that we fearlessly, boldly, will find ourselves making disciples as we're going. And that you will be glorified. In your name I pray. Amen.